It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, I think the theme for today's show is uh, threats to democracy and what the world can or should do about it. Because we got we got the coup in Myanmar uh, and what options that the Biden administration has or does not have to, to respond to it. We will talk about the sentencing of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Uh, there's a major attack on abortion rights in Poland. We'll get into uh, President Biden's decision to pause arms sales to Saudi Arabia and the UAE, and then some actually some interesting and notable reforms made in Saudi Arabia, uh, and then Israel's vaccination effort. But it does feel like uh, you know democracy is being tested in a lot of yeah. ways right now. Maybe shortly after our own was tested. Yeah. No. There's a common theme, <laughs> common thread. Yeah. It's, um, you know, not ideal, but good. We'll, we'll, we'll fight through it. And then our guest today is uh, Terrell Jermaine Starr, the host of Black Diplomats. It's a great podcast. He's also a senior reporter at The Root. You guys just talked. Can you give us a preview of what folks will hear in the interview? Yeah, I really wanted to just, you know, Terrell's doing some really interesting stuff at Black Diplomats. And I wanted him to explain kind of the, the worldview that infuses what he does, which is that you need to structurally take on the lack of diversity and representation in foreign policy and media, but but not just about you know getting people in jobs, changing the mindset. Uh, what happens if if we deal with white supremacy across the board, including in our foreign policy? How would that lead to different outcomes? How would that lead to America? You know, not just showing a different face, but acting differently at home and in the world. So Terrell really takes us into that. It's a cool interview. That's fantastic. I, I'm very excited to hear that. Um, also, Ben, you have some big, big personal breaking news to announce, exclusive for Pod Save the World listeners. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> what yeah, is it? yeah. No, so today, uh, my book uh, "After the Fall: Being America and the World We've Made" uh, is live for pre-order. Um, I'm clapping. And I'm clapping uh, over here. yes, and I've uh, you know I've dangled you know bits and pieces of this on the show, but I mean I, I, I'll just describe kind of what I set out to do. Um, you know, a few years ago, I, I basically set out to write a book to try to understand what the hell is happening in the world. <laughs> you know, uh, what's happening in the world? What's happening in America? What was happening to me feeling like so exiled, essentially, from the things I worked on that were being dismantled by Trump and in my own country that was unrecognizable to me? And all those things have to do with why was democracy collapsing everywhere? And what was interesting about it is that I went abroad, right? And I I spent a lot of time talking to Russian opposition. I spent a lot of time talking to uh, uh, people like Alexei Navalny, who told me his whole story of what's happened in Russia in his life and why that led him to make the decisions he did and take the risks that he's taken uh, and, and, and really unpacking the nature of the Putin regime and how, how corrupt it was and, and, and how it had a playbook of authoritarianism that had been repurposed in, in a place like Hungary. And I spent a lot of time in Hungary talking to activists and opposition leaders uh, about what had happened in their country. And one of the things that was particularly alarming there is that the playbook that had been run in Hungary 
was verbatim the playbook that the Republican Party has run in this country. <laughs> you know, get elected mm-hmm. on a platform of right wing backlash to the financial crisis, uh, you know, redistrict to, in, you know, get a majority foothold, have propaganda outlets uh, and disinformation outlets that get your message out, pack the courts, uh, get corrupt cronies who finance your politics and have this kind of nationalist us versus them message that demonizes immigrants and Muslims and even, you know, George Soros. Like the same thing. And and I, I started to see America more clearly by looking at what had happened in places like Russia and then Hungary. Uh, and then spent a lot of time talking to people from China and particularly Hong Kong about how even if we look at Russia and Hungary as kind of the vanguard of pushing back against democracy, China is the one with the different model. Uh, and what does that feel like to people in places like Hong Kong who are being encroached upon by this kind of techno totalitarianism? where they can literally feel their their freedom slipping away. But the thing that was so interesting to me is I realized a book that I set out to write about the world was actually about America because I had to reckon with the fact that the 30 years since the end of the Cold War that America has been this kind of unchecked hegemon, we made this world. Uh, our fingerprints were everywhere. And, and it was really in a, a few different areas. Our kind of embrace of unbridled capitalism, unregulated capitalism and globalization after the Cold War kind of created not only the financial crisis that collapsed people's confidence in in America and our leadership, but also created this void in people's lives where they didn't didn't have anywhere to turn for meaning. And so they turned to these traditional brands of nationalism. Uh, And then post 9-11 militarism, where you had People like Putin literally, you know, using the exact same rhetoric uh, that was used to justify the war on terror to justify what they were doing uh, and, you know, copycatting even some of the authorities that that, uh, that the U.S. pursued after 9-11, but chiefly creating this kind of us versus them politics where you demonize the other constantly um, and how that bled into China, right, where China said that it's putting a million Uyghurs in concentration camps was the people's war on terror. You know, they they very mm-hmm. clearly align themselves with that. And then lastly, obviously, technology and the kind of unregulated explosion of social media and the Internet that we thought was going to be this tool to connect everybody and became this kind of perfect weapon of, of surveillance in the Chinese case and disinformation in the in the Russian case. And, and, you know, we have to wrestle with the fact that all these things happening around the world aren't foreign. They're the same things that are happening here. And in many ways, they're the outcome of 30 years of of what America has chosen to be. Um, and so the, the biggest part of the book actually deals with America. And in my experience, kind of questioning every assumption I had about who we are and what we do in the world, going back and unpacking some of the things that happened in the Obama years through a new lens. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I left it feeling oddly more hopeful, you know, even though it sounds like, I, you know, because I met these amazing people, you know, Alexei Navalny, Zana Nemsova, an amazing Russian woman whose, whose father was killed by Putin outside the Kremlin, these Hungarian oppositionists, these Hong Kong protesters, people like fighting for the things that America is supposed to stand for, right? Um, so I'm sorry if that speechified a little bit, but the, the real point I want to make here, Tommy, is that like, you sit down to write and it's hard as hell. You got a blank screen, it's even harder in a pandemic. And you try to think of like, who is your audience? Because you're, you know, you're trying to tell a story to somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my audience is you guys, is <laughs> Worldos. Like that, I was thinking about you guys because we have this conversation every week. And I'm like, I'm traveling, I'm meeting these people, I'm wrestling with these things. It's a very personal book. It, it has the feel of a memoir. 
And it was kind of an effort for me to try to explain everything that I've been processing these last few years. So I really hope, I hope everybody picks it up, of course, but I particularly, particularly hope that, that worldos pick it up and feel like it's part of this conversation that we've been having uh, the last couple of years. That's awesome. I, I cannot wait to read it. And also just, I'll say it till you don't have to, if you want to buy this book, pre-order it guys listening, because that helps Ben get on like the New York Times bestseller site. It helps other people find it. It helps us knock like Dan Bongino's fucking <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. book that like the RNC bought 400,000 copies of off. So check it out. It's incredible. You've heard bits and pieces of it on this show. Ben has been generous enough to share anecdotes from his travel along the way, but I, I guarantee you will love this. Um, by the way, also, if, if you guys love uh, news and jokes, Subscribe to our What A Day newsletter. It's hilarious. It's informative. It's nightly. Crooked.com slash subscribe. Also, uh, listeners to Pod Save America know that I'm the unofficial president of the Keep It fan club. That's our, our pop culture and politics podcast. I literally never miss an episode. But this month is especially great because they're hosting a series of discussions with black creators, uh, business leaders, uh, and guests for Black History Month. So it's just really great stuff. Check it out. Check out Keep It. Um, okay, Ben. So let's start in Myanmar. Um, very sad news out of Myanmar. Some people call it Burma. Long story there. We're just going to go with Myanmar for the purposes of this show. But over the weekend, the military staged a coup. Uh, they surrounded Myanmar's parliament building and arrested top civilian leaders like Aung San Suu Kyi. The commander in chief of Burma's military is now de facto in charge. The military has declared a year-long state of emergency. Um, for those who don't know, Aung San Suu Kyi is a, a political leader, uh, a Nobel Peace Prize winner who spent decades under house arrest because of the military. She's a revered and also controversial figure. So Ben, we could start this story in a lot of places, right? You're like 2011, yeah. 2015, 1962, 1948. But I think for now, maybe we just go back to November of last year. That was when Aung San Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy Party trounced the military's proxy party, the Union Solidarity and Development Party in these parliamentary elections. I think her party won like 70 or 80 percent of the vote. And this threatened the military's control of the country, which they had a lot of because of how uh, Myanmar's constitution is uh, set up. And so the military quickly declared that this election was fraudulent. There was a lot of chatter and concern and speculation about a potential coup. It sort of increased uh, ever since November when that election occurred. Um, I should note that election observers, international observers, don't believe there was fraud. But this coup finally occurred over the weekend on the day that the parliament was supposed to convene for its first session. And not coincidentally, uh, this also means that Myanmar's top general goes from this sort of lame duck figure who is going to retire in June to a de facto dictator. So. Ben, what what else do you think people need to know about what happened? And like, despite you know all these concerns and sort of predictions that have been building over time, were you surprised that the military ultimately went through and just seized power in a very classic old school military coup this weekend? Well, I mean, I think you know first and foremost, it's a tragedy for the people of Myanmar. Um, I think what people need to understand is that the, the competition between Aung San Suu Kyi and the military has never been resolved. And it goes back many decades. And the military has been in charge for most of Myanmar's history as an independent country. Aung San Suu Kyi went back to the country and won a landslide democratic election in 1990. And the military invalidated it and threw her in prison <laughs> and, and put her under house arrest, essentially. And it wasn't until 2011 that she was able to reenter politics. And there was this moment in 2015 when her party, the NLD, won a landslide election. 
But that didn't mean that she had the power. She became what's called a state counselor because the Constitution expressly prohibited her from becoming president. There was a provision in the Constitution written into the Constitution that said if you had foreign-born children, you could not become president. And it was written with her in mind. The military under the Constitution prescribed itself a 25% block in the parliament, which was enough to prevent them from allowing the Constitution to be amended. So you can see what was going on here. The military was trying to right, keep right. its power right? And, and keep its economic interests, by the way, too, because they, they're corrupt, they enrich themselves. All their power, all their money could be at risk if Aung San Suu Kyi and the NLD could reform that constitution. And so since she won that election in 2015, her five-year term, the five-year parliamentary term, was very tense because she wanted to reform the constitution. The military obviously didn't want her to do that. You had what we've talked about a lot, the ethnic cleansing of the Rohingya, which got a lot of attention where she seemed to not want to challenge the military, in part because she didn't want what just happened to happen. You know, She thought that she might be able to co-op some of the military, to make a deal with them, to show them perhaps that she wasn't as threatening as they might have thought. But this question was, was unresolved, and, and she had a very negative relationship, let's just say a rivalry, with this commander-in-chief, Min Ong Leng. Um, the two of them did not like each other, did not get along. I met when I met with her, but when I was still in government, she would complain about him that he he wanted to do something like this. She spoke about fears of a coup. So this has been lurking in the backdrop, despite kind of the the partial democratic opening that's taken place in the country. Now, what happened here is they had an election and the NLD won overwhelmingly. That is not surprising. Every time there's been a vote, you know, 1990, 2015, this year, the NLD run, wins by about the same amount. You know, they win like 80 plus percent of the country because Aung San Suu Kyi is literally the national hero. She's the daughter of the founding father of the country. She's revered in the countryside everywhere, right? Whether, you know, we can talk about, obviously, she's a flawed leader. She obviously didn't use her moral authority or her political power to do anything to help the Rohingya. But in the country, she's the person who's the unifying figure. The military made these claims of massive electoral fraud sound familiar, um, that an independent election commission said didn't take place. And, and what happened, Tommy, is that there was a period where they, they wanted to negotiate something. Min Ong Long, the commander in chief, was required to step down. He was about to lose his power because he was essentially kind of term limited out of his job as commander in chief. And he was trying to negotiate with her that, that he would become president and she could still be the state counselor. And she just kept saying no to that for reasons that you know you might understand. And so there's this kind of irreconcilable difference where the military really didn't want to accede to the result of the election or wanted something in return from her in order to validate uh, the results of the election. She wasn't going to budge on certain things. So I wasn't necessarily surprised. Um, you know, the only reason I, I was a little surprised is that for the, the military itself, their interests were already pretty protected. You know, like I said, they had this 25% uh, you know, block in parliament against really transformative constitutional change. They still controlled the ministries of defense and home affairs, the kind of the core security ministries. I'm sure they still have their corrupt interests. This really seemed to be about this one guy, Min Ong Lang, who felt like he was about to get pushed aside, perhaps. And so this is his power play. And clearly what he was able to do is bring the military along uh, and, you know, what is an old fashioned coup and what is, again, tragically not new in Myanmar, it's a return 
to the old status quo, the, the military kind of dictatorship that has prevailed for most of the country's history of independence. Yeah, Ben, I think that's like a very good lay down, I think, of what's happening in Burma. Um, predictably, a lot of the U.S. coverage of what has happened has framed this as, you know, a test for Biden or even a test for for the U.S. and its moral authority. So I think we should get it to the, the options that are available to the Biden team. Um, already, the Biden administration has formally declared that this was a coup. Uh, Biden pointed out in a statement that the U.S. used to have a whole bunch of sanctions on Myanmar, but those were removed over the course of about a decade because the country made progress towards democracy. The clear implication there being that Biden could reimpose sanctions if he wants to. Uh, Congress could introduce legislation to sanction Myanmar. Um, there are also these previous horrifying uh, allegations you referred to that Myanmar's military conducted a genocide against a Muslim minority population called the Rohingya. Uh, I say allegations. I, I, I am confident that this, this happened. But the Biden team is reviewing the set of facts to see whether this was a genocide. Uh, and that process should be separate, you know, based on the merits. But a lot of the same people, the same generals in uh, Myanmar are implicated in the genocide, you know, so that's another pressure point. Um, ben, you know, what tools do you think the Biden administration has available to influence the military's behavior? And like, how impactful do you think those tools are against this, you know, military government in, in in Myanmar. And then like one very leading question for you, which is, um, do you worry as much as I do when you read all these reports uh, about this issue as like America's problem to solve? I, I worry about where, where the logic goes there. Yeah. I mean, look, the first priority here should be that the United States needs to do whatever we can to get as many other countries on board with delegitimizing this as a coup, um, which is not as easy as it sounds because a lot of countries in that neighborhood in, in Southeast Asia are not democratic and, and don't want to take this on. But most importantly, you know, obviously, in addition to kind of Europe and Japan and our allies, you know, countries like India, that is a you know big neighbor of Myanmar, is coming out strongly that this is illegitimate, that this is a coup and calling for a return to democracy. Um, very delicate and interesting diplomacy needs to be done with China, which has a lot of influence uh, in Myanmar as well. Um, actions at the UN, you want as broad a chorus as possible um, to just indicate to the military in Myanmar that the, the world is not going to accept this and that they're going to be isolated and, and that what people expect is a return to democratic rule in the country. Um, then you want to use that to try to get into some window for diplomacy? Can we get back to some diplomacy inside of the country that allows for you know, a process of, of discussion, negotiation for a path back to the NLD seat being seated in parliament? Uh, you know, The military said it wants to have another election. I mean, the NLD clearly won the last election. I think the starting point should be <laughs> seat the parliament that already won the election. Um, but the question is, can we just make sure that that there's a capacity to return to democracy? In terms of what tools the U.S. has in addition to that, yes, there's sanctions. Um, I think that the important point here is that this should focus on the, the, the people most responsible for this. So uh, we mentioned Min Aung Long, the commander in chief. This is the guy, I think, who you know, needs to be the, the most pursued in terms of isolation and sanction and whatever circle of people is enabling this. Because you want to kind of send a message to the rest of the military, like, don't follow this guy down this path, which, by the way, 
uh, and this is part of the reason why I was surprised, could be devastating for the military, for, for the country to descend back into, right. you know, the civil wars with ethnic groups in that country escalate. You're descending back into extreme poverty. Obviously, you have sanctions, although a lot of these military leaders have learned how to make money on the kind of the dark market of drugs and jade and rubies and things like that. So so but you want to you want to indicate a choice to these people. of Don't go down this road. You know, the world is not accepting this result. Uh, we're going to come after this guy uh, and his and his cronies in terms of, of sanctions. And, and we're, but we're going to offer a window of diplomacy for you to, to climb back from what you did. Um, and that's that's your best. It's a long shot. I'm not suggesting it is easy, but but that's the 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 play available to the Biden team. You know, international delegitimization, yeah. sanctions, and the threat of additional sanctions, and really aggressive diplomacy as fast as possible to try to get some diplomacy going inside of the country so that there's there's a path back from this precipice. Yeah. I think what uh, what just made me nervous was reading all these articles in like straight news reporting about how this is a test of Biden, a test for democracy. Yeah. And then you read like the neocons, right? The Wall Street Journal editorial page wrote the top U.S. priority in Asia is limiting Beijing's ability to control independent states like Burma, which is strategically situated in the Indo-Pacific, uh, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't mention, you know, the 54 million the, the, uh, the people, people. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's like yeah. this feels yeah. very like Vietnam era domino theory. We must roll back the bad guys. And it's like, wait, 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 wait. Let's talk about the tools available. What's sort of like in the realm of possibility? And then I think the lessons of the past 20 years, right, is is don't act uh, quickly and make things worse. I mean, that's my that's my fear here. Not that we're going to really invade Burma. I don't think Joe Biden's going to do that. But, you know, it was like hard to read all these things and think no lessons have been learned. Well, yeah, I mean, because first of all, if you if you dump all your sanctions on them right away and you just start yelling about the Chinese, that then that's going to be the status quo, you know. Um, And by the way, we may end up there, but but you need to give some yourself some window to try to 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 affect the situation positively again, because of those 54 million people who are suffering, who are at risk, you know, I've heard from lots of friends inside of Myanmar who are scared and worried and concerned and want there to be some some possibility that that the, the current direction of events doesn't continue. I think the second point you make, Tommy, is, is just like name this elephant in the room, like of, you know, the, I, the same coverage and, you know, this is Obama's failure. These, these countries aren't baseball cards that we try to compete with the Chinese for. These are countries where people live. They're complicated places. This dynamic inside of Myanmar is is very difficult in the sense that we all want a democracy. That's what we support, right? Um, That's why we supported Aung San Suu Kyi, because she would win democratic elections, right? That was complicated in its own right, because even after she won democratic elections, she didn't exactly govern as we would like, particularly on the Rohingya issue, right? Um, So so these are not... This is not some play that can be orchestrated from Washington, right? Yeah. There there are too many actors involved inside of Myanmar. There's such a complicated history there. There's ethnic civil wars. There's a military that has always had power. I mean, this is what's also so ridiculous about this. They they never fully relinquished it. They partially relinquished the power they had. Now they're trying to take it back all of it. And that's that's the tragedy here, right? And, yeah. and and I do I do I hope that what we try to do on this show is give these give people a sense that there's context to these issues. And when we make it just like a you know a, a test of the the political narrative in Washington, uh, that that sometimes doesn't lead 
to the right kind of nuance that you need um, in dealing with an incredibly difficult situation. Yeah, we we don't need another uh, you know domino theory uh, of the case. So let's let's talk about some of the context in this recent history here and the ways uh, Myanmar opened up during the Obama administration because. You know, both of us were on uh, President Obama's trip to Myanmar in 2012 when he became the first U.S. president in history to visit. He met with uh, the president at the time, uh, a retired general named uh, Thanh Sen, who I think later came to Washington and met with him in the Oval Office. He met with Aung San Suu Kyi. He delivered uh, a major speech about the U.S.-Myanmar relationship. And that was, you know, the early stages of a process that really started in 2011 and that culminated in the lifting of longstanding U.S. sanctions on Myanmar and really saw this remarkable opening up of a country that had been totally isolated and controlled by a military junta for decades. Again, obviously, it was an imperfect opening. You talked about some of the structural problems within the Constitution itself, but it was still remarkable. But you know, even at that time, there were people saying Obama moved too quickly, you know, like he was too thirsty for a deal to open Myanmar up. Others uh, uh, said that there was not enough attention being paid to the treatment of the Rohingya, the ethnic minority uh, that we believe was uh, the victim of a genocide, uh, and that, you know, more attention should have been paid to their rights in that time to try to prevent what ultimately happened. Ben, you know, you spent a lot of time working on this issue in government. You've been back uh, once since you left, you've written extensively about it in the Atlantic. Like neither of us is a dispassionate observer here because of the fact that this is part of the Obama legacy. They're issues we personally worked on, but I do want to try to like think about the decision in hindsight and see if, uh, how to judge it. Because I guess the questions I have are like, is it just too soon to know whether the opening was the right move in 2011, 2012? Do we think that this decade of opening up could be just a good thing no matter what? because it showed the people of Burma that there was this better future that was more democratic that's now available to them? Was the military given too much leeway? Like, how are you thinking about all of that work in hindsight, given the events of the weekend? Well, again, it relates to what we were just talking about in the sense of like, we didn't create the opening. <laughs> it happened inside of Myanmar. You know, like the the, the Burmese military, Thane saying the president began to open up. And the United States had long supported democracy in Myanmar and supported Aung San Suu Kyi as kind of the emblem of the pursuit of democracy in Myanmar. So, you know, again, first of all, this wasn't some situation where the United States pried something open with a a crowbar. This was the country started to open and we thought, how can we encourage that? What what is the best we can do to try to encourage that? And President Obama engaging them, uh, restoring an ambassador to the country. I, I I don't know why we why would you not do that you know like look, like looking back like I I I honestly those initial steps right of having an ambassador and sending Obama you want to encourage countries that begin to go down a path um, and and that's what we did um, and uh, m- mindful of the fact that not all the problems in this country were solved um, so on the first question of just like should we have gone and should we uh, well of course we should have should what, what should we have favored the the military state like i don't quite get the logic of 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 the alternative of not supporting the opening and and Aung San Suu Kyi's reentry to politics and an election right because mm-hmm. there might be a coup several you know uh several years later right there's a question of did we lift sanctions too fast which is a very valid question to debate um and again my view is was it the time and i still tend to think the military 
has its own, they, they lived under sanctions for decades, right? They, they have their own sources of, of corrupt financing. They, they, they trade in drugs and gems and all kinds of stuff, right? And so our calculation in consultation with Aung San Suu Kyi, by the way, was that the, that the sanctions were punishing the people in Myanmar. And and not necessarily the, the generals were rich. They they were rich under sanctions, right? And 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 again, people can debate this. And but but my, my belief, and I continue to believe it, is that we sometimes overstate, overthink the impact of these sanctions. Look at Cuba. Look at Iran. Sanctions aren't changing their governments, right? Um, so to me, it's it, it's a, the tragedy of the fact that the the Myanmar militaries began to go down a path of relinquishing some power. And when they got to the precipice of where they were going to have to relinquish a lot of it, they pulled back. Um, and in, in the last several years, nothing changed their calculus from pulling back. Um, and now they pull back all the way. Um, I also want to say, Tommy, like people should question us. But like, what the hell happened in the last four years? Like, did Donald Trump ever engage Aung San Suu Kyi or the, the you know, anybody in Myanmar? Uh, yeah. He actually just tried to do the same thing that the military did in saying that there was electoral fraud and overturn elections. I, I, this is not pure whataboutism. The point is that the stories of foreign countries don't begin and end with American administrations. There's a there's a 70 year history to what's happened in Myanmar um, that you know, extends through multiple administrations here. And and I stand by the idea that when there's an opportunity to take, to try to promote democracy, you take it and you do whatever you can to, to try to move it forward. Um, and, 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 you know, to me, uh, the, I guess the more missed opportunity that I, I consider is like, could we have done more to try to broker something between Aung San Suu Kyi and the military? When we had, mm-hmm. when we were still there in 2015, 2016, that, that I, you know, I, that, let's think about that because sometimes people just think of sanctions. Well, like, and we tried, but like, could we have done more to, to try to resolve some of these structural issues? Um, maybe not, and maybe it wouldn't even have been us. Could we have worked with other countries to try to do that? Um, those questions should all be asked. But I don't think, I think it would be a tragedy, frankly, to draw a lesson that because there was just a coup in Myanmar that 10 years ago, we shouldn't have encouraged a democratic opening that that had a, a chance of success. Um, you know that that would be a dangerous lesson to draw. I think. Yeah. Look, I I, I agree. I am sort of channeling the Washington D.C. conventional wisdom that talks uh, about diplomatic agreements with more scrutiny than like most wars that are waged. But uh, you know, I yes. think it's good to yeah, yeah. think through. It's good, to, always good to think through and, and invent this stuff. And, and, and again, we have a point. I've, I have, a, you know, I, I personally was involved. So people should question, uh, please, like they should criticize. Um, but uh, what I hope they don't do is think that somehow the U.S. ever, ever had all the control, that, that we were able to determine what was going to happen in Myanmar in 2011 or 2015 or 2017 or 2020. Um, this is a complicated country with a complicated history. We have to do the best we can at every given moment. Uh, here and yes, hopefully, like hopefully they can get back to democracy. Hopefully, the experience of the last ten years means that they'll be better the next time that there's another opening. You just have to keep trying. You can't give up on these places, and you can't give up on democracy.
Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. So let's turn to Russia because I think actually it is kind of related. Um, the last several weeks we've been talking about uh, Alexei Navalny, the Russian anti-corruption activist, opposition leader, General Thorne and Vladimir Putin's side. Last August, Navalny was poisoned. He was nearly killed by Putin's goons. He had to go to Germany for treatment, but decided to come back uh, to Moscow uh, a few weeks ago where he was immediately arrested. There were big protests over the weekend. You know, Today, a Russian court sentenced Navalny to an additional two and a half years in prison for what was uh, essentially a parole violation. Uh, you know, you know that this verdict is a, a joke because, you know, some of these alleged parole violations happened when Navalny was recovering in Germany from being poisoned. Um, near the end of the trial, Navalny denounced Putin and said he will go down in history as Vladimir, the poisoner of underpants. The uh, the reason he said that is the poison used against Navalny was reportedly put on his underwear. That's how they applied it to him. So as we were preparing to record, hundreds of, of riot police have filled up Red Square and other places in central Moscow. Uh, Tony Blinken, the secretary of state, has called for Navalny's immediate and unconditional release. Um, ben, this seems like a, a big change in terms of how Putin is dealing with Navalny. This trial was like big and it was public. Uh, previously, Russian authorities hadn't punished Navalny nearly as severely. He'd gotten house arrest. He'd gotten shorter sentences. But, you know, this the, the thinking then seemed to be they didn't want to martyr him. Uh, now he may be locked up for several years. I'm sure that Biden's national security team is like debating all of this as we speak. What do you think the range of options are here to respond? And, and like, what do you what do you recommend that they do? Well, you know, I think the, the sense, um, again, is a, a human tragedy for Navalny, although he knew, you know, he knew the risk he was taking and he may have wanted to force the issue. Um, and and he's proven the massive support he has, and I think this will only increase the support, um, you know, because people see the the unfairness and corruption of of this of this ruling. I think for Biden, again, you know, it's related to what we just said. He can't. There's no action he can take right now that's going to force Russia to release Alexei Navalny. What he can do is shine a spotlight. Never stop talking about Alexei Navalny every single time that anything comes up with Russia, Alexei Navalny's case should be front and center. The, the world's attention needs to stay on his case every single day that he's in prison. I think more importantly, because people can talk about sanctions, but you know we've mentioned this on the show before, what has Alexei Navalny really honed in on that has resonated with the Russian public? It is Vladimir Putin's corruption. You know That video he showed of this billion dollar palace that Putin clearly felt 
you know, like he got caught because he's been denying it. And now they they trotted some guy out saying, oh, no, it's my hotel when it's pretty obviously Vladimir Putin's you know billion dollar house that he goes to hang out at. And and I think what Joe Biden can do in the Biden administration is continue the work that Alexei Navalny was doing in revealing Vladimir Putin's corruption and, and spotlighting that corruption and, and highlighting for people just how much money this guy's worth and where his money is and how his money flows to the financial system. That's what we can do is we, we can't, we're not going to be able to, to force an outcome here, but what we can do is, is carry this fight forward and, and do the kind of work that Navalny was doing, not just us, but other countries, I hope, because the corruption is the vulnerability for Putin. And that, that's why Alexei Navalny is in prison. Uh, and so I, I really hope that the Biden team stays focused on that. Um, because th- this story is not over. Alexei Navalny uh, has, tapped a, has tapped a vein here that speaks to the deepest frustrations that Russians have with their own government. And those frustrations are not going to go away because Navalny's behind bars. Yeah, hopefully, um, hopefully the opposition can sort of sustain all the protesting and the work they were doing. And, uh, you know, Navalny will be safe in, in jail. But yeah, pretty harrowing stuff. Um, yeah. Okay, we have a, a few more issues. We're trying to tick through a little bit faster. Um, so the first one was something we've talked about before, which was last week, Poland uh, finally imposed a near total ban on abortion rights, uh, which uh, now are only permitted in cases of rape, incest, or when the mother's life in, is in danger. This ruling by Poland's constitutional court first came down in October of last year. It sparked massive protests that delayed the implementation of the law, which seemed like a, a hopeful sign. Um, and then last week, it seems like Polish citizens were actually quite surprised when the government published a law enforcing this ruling. Uh, Poland's ruling party, the Law and Justice Party, is this extremely right-wing group. Uh, this move is, is seen as part of a broader attack on you know, social freedoms and a, a play to appeal to the country's Roman Catholic population. It doesn't seem like the protests are going to end anytime soon, despite bone-chilling temperatures. Um, you know, Benny, and when we talked about this story a few months back, I was a lot more hopeful that the protests could you know indefinitely delay this ruling or give some time for the legislature to work? Do you think there's any role that the international community or institutions can or should play in trying to you know push back on the the repressive trajectory in Poland, or do you think that kind of goes into uh, messing with their sort of internal lawmaking? I think it's hard to do. I think that you know one thing is that you having an administration that once again is. Uh, you know, not afraid to promote women's health uh, and women's choice around the world, that alone is is, is useful, right? And so, you know, we just shifted from a, a Republican administration, you know, that bans any funding whatsoever uh, in U.S. development assistance, for instance, to going to anything that could have to do with reproductive health. Um, that's changed. And I think we can speak about these issues publicly in, in forums around the world. I don't think there's much you can do kind of bilaterally to Poland, I think you can raise concerns about these types of issues. But ultimately, this should be something that galvanizes kind of cross-border movements. You know, we we talked about the movement in Argentina that succeeded yeah. um, in legalizing uh, abortion. I think, you know, the biggest threat to laws like this is people getting mobilized inside of Poland, getting involved in politics. And we've seen women marching in the streets there. And, 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 and I think the solidarity we can show to those people is ultimately what's going to change things. This is another common thread, right? Is that these fights are never over. Like Navalny in prison, this law passing, even what happened in Myanmar, like we just have to put our heads back down and recognize that in all these issues, there are movements that are 
across borders that need to support one another. And, and that's that that's the role that we should think of for ourselves. Yeah, agreed. Uh, okay, so some good news here. Last week, the Wall Street Journal broke the news that the Biden administration has imposed uh, a temporary freeze on U.S. arms sales to Saudi Arabia and that they are also reviewing weapons sales to the United Arab Emirates, including uh, the sale of the F-35 fighter jet and advanced drones. Those F-35 fighters and the drones were promised to the UAE by the Trump administration as part of the Abraham Accords, which was their effort to get Middle Eastern countries to officially establish diplomatic relations with Israel. Um, the fact that that Biden is reviewing these arms sales is very good. It's, it's especially good for the people of Yemen. The, the war in Yemen has led to horrific famine. Uh, and thanks to amazing work by activists over many years, there is now bipartisan support for ending U.S. involvement in that Saudi-led war in Yemen. Uh, that U.S. involvement started under Obama, uh, which was a mistake. It was greatly curtailed by the time he left office. But then Trump ramped it way back up uh, and just, you know, it was indiscriminate, horrifying death that led to famine. So, Ben, you know, I'm starting to see some hand-wringing about how Biden might need to work with the Saudis more closely. He might need them on Iran, that cutting off arms to the Saudis will lead to some broader rupture in the relationship. Uh, I think it's also worth remembering that the Biden administration will likely declassify and release an intelligence report on the murder of Washington Post uh, columnist Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, so, you know, there's sort of like two pieces to this news. There's the Saudi piece. There's the UAE piece. Uh, curious if you're at all worried about this, you know, sort of rumination you're seeing in the press about upsetting the U.S.-Saudi relationship. And then with respect to the U.S.-UAE arms sales with these advanced fighters and the drones, if the Biden folks say they want to build on the Abraham Accords, should we? do you think we should assume that most of this arms sale will ultimately get approved? I mean, these are like very long-term uh, horizons we're talking about when it comes to arms sales that can often take decades. Yeah, I mean, it's a very positive step, and it shows that they're really looking at these relationships. Um, be, you know, because it's the war in Yemen, it's the arms sales, and it's Khashoggi. Those are the the near term things where we want to see action. And they've said all the right things about all three of those. Um, and there's no reason, you know, for the UAE to get tens of billions of dollars worth of weapons to to normalize relations with Israel. Um, that doesn't make any sense. It's not. Why is that required, right? They should they should want to make you know, peace, uh, everybody uses the word peace. I, I don't. They weren't at war, but norm, they should want to normalize relations with Israel because it's it's the right thing to do. Um, it's the right thing to do diplomatically. It's the right thing to do morally. Um, and, and so, I, yeah, I hope that's not the kind of situation where they review it, but then it just all goes forward because it's 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 not relevant uh, to 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 normalization. It shouldn't be the price of normalization. Shouldn't be giving them you know, every last weapon system they want. Um, and and at, at the same time, I, you know, I think they, they're going to have to figure out like how to, you're not going to, like even people like me are very critical you know, of the Gulf relationships. Obviously, you're not going to like sever ties to these countries. They have to think through what is a more rational approach to countries where we have, you know, serious differences with their human rights concerns. And that's related to what we've said, we've been talking about, Tommy, because, you know, to the Saudi relationship, even more than the Emirati relationship, that gets thrown back in our face. We're going around the world talking about democracy in, in Myanmar and, and Russia. And, and then we have like a, a friend in Mohammed Salman who's chopping up journalists. So to me, how they articulate kind of what they see these Gulf relationships being 
in a more rational way that factors in human rights concerns, that factors in concerns about Yemen, where we did make a big mistake in the Obama years uh, of supporting that initial uh, effort. That's going to be the the, the real proof here. And of course, Iran too, whether we're giving them a veto uh, on whether or not we re-enter an Iran agreement if the Iranians uh, comply with it. Those are all things that I think will be evident in the next few months um, where the administration lands. So far, so very good. And they deserve a lot of credit for what they're doing. Yeah, agreed. Um, very eager to hear about the the JCPOA decision soon. Um, there was some good news out of Saudi Arabia that I wanted to highlight because I think we're often understandably pretty hard on the country. So for decades, there have been Saudi textbooks that have included anti-Semitic content, hostility towards religions other than, than Sunni Islam, uh, and then homophobic and misogynistic content. But experts say that a lot of that objectionable material has recently been edited out of these textbooks. So the revision started in 2019, and I guess even more was removed for 2020 editions. Again, these textbooks are still far from perfect. There's stuff in there that would uh, offend a lot of people. But the head of this Israel-based institute that monitors school curriculums called the changes quite astonishing. So it seems good. Um, Ben, this is is very dark, but I also read that executions in Saudi Arabia were down 85% from, from 2019 to 2020. Some of that has to do with COVID restrictions, but some was a reduction from what appear to be reforms like a ban on capital punishment for drug crimes. So, you know, This does strike me as the kind of stuff people were hoping to see when uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman ran around the U.S. getting great press, calling himself a reformer uh, and convincing uh, journalists and tech CEOs that he was a good guy. But, you know, I do think they deserve some credit for these like incremental but important changes. They do. And and again, I've been very critical, right? But like we should give people credit where credit is due. And these are important changes. They're they're kind of sea changes uh, in what has been a history of anti-Semitism kind of problematic content. So yeah, I mean, this is a good thing. And, and, And again, like this speaks to the fact that like, yes, the idea of modernizing, reforming elements of the society is good. Um, the question is, you don't need to to be a dictator that doesn't tolerate dissent in, in order to modernize. Um, you know, so so I, yes, I hope you know that this is the beginning of of a broader set of changes that that gets at some of these social elements, but that ultimately also gets at tolerating human rights activists and, and dissenting voices too. Um, uh, that would be good. I'd, I'd rather that happen than than have to be you know critical a lot here. So so we should welcome it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely good news. Um, Two stories uh, about Israel that I wanted to flag. So the first is the forward wrote an interesting piece noting that while, you know, Biden and uh, Bibi Netanyahu talked about 10 days after Biden declared victory in the presidential campaign, they have not spoken since Biden became president. Uh, They pointed out that Biden has talked with the leaders of Canada, Mexico, Britain, France, Germany, NATO, Russia and Japan. That's not a ton of calls in two weeks, Ben. Uh, and, you know, Biden's top national security team, they've like three of them or four of them have called their counterparts. But, you know, it, people are pointing out it's a notable omission. So, like basic question for you. Do you think there's a message here from Biden's team to Netanyahu uh, that, you know, th- they're not his biggest fan? Or are we all just like over interpreting, uh, you know, the call list when Joe Biden is like trying to negotiate a COVID deal, blah, 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 like do a billion things? I think it's probably a little bit of both. I mean, I don't think it's like some huge thing, but you know, like the reality is that 
that Joe Biden was the vice president in administration, that Netanyahu, you know, fought tooth and nail for for most of eight years, and and the fact that he wouldn't be at the top of the call list shouldn't be a surprise, right? Um, at the same time, I don't think it's an indication of any more kind of su- substantial shift in how they're going to approach Israel. I think you know it's going to be. Uh, you know, he's going to want to have a good relationship with Israel. That's Joe Biden's orientation. But uh, it, it probably does indicate a little bit of like, hey, we didn't forget what happened there, particularly yeah. in the second Obama term. Yeah, fair. Uh, the other part uh, of this story is that, you know, Israel has run the best vaccination campaign in the world, and they deserve credit for it. Uh, as of the weekend, they had administered 5 million vaccine doses to the uh, to Israel's population uh, of about 9 million people. So we're talking about the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine. So some folks have gotten one jab, others have gotten two, and so they're fully vaccinated. But Israel is vaccinated like a quarter to a third of the population, which, my God, that makes me jealous, uh, given where we're sitting here in California and in the U.S. Um, and, and the good news is that like that vaccination campaign has been wildly effective in terms of driving down case numbers, hospitalizations, et cetera. But here's a very important caveat that I think is worth talking about. The Israeli government is not vaccinating Palestinians living in the West Bank or in the Gaza Strip. And Palestinian health officials will probably have to wait months for their vaccine doses to arrive because they acquired them separately. Um, Over the weekend, the Israeli government announced it would transfer 5,000 doses to the Palestinians to immunize frontline workers in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. But obviously, that does no, comes nowhere close to vaccinating uh, even a big chunk of the population. It's probably not even all uh, caregivers. So inequality when it comes to the distribution of vaccines is not just a problem in Israel, right? In, in the U.S., you're seeing black and brown communities get vaccinated at a lower rate. Rich countries like the United States have been able to buy up hundreds of millions of doses of of vaccines while poor countries will have to wait longer. But I did think that this was a pretty egregious example, given that, you know, when it comes to Israel, we are talking about territory that in, in one instance Israel occupies. And when we're talking about Gaza, they control access to. There is a broader and more important point which is admittedly very hard to make when we're all scared and we all are stuck at home and we just desperately want to get vaccinated, which is that like vaccine nationalism, worrying about your country first is not a winning long-term strategy, right? Because even if we vaccinate every American, we're not going to be safe if COVID is like flying around the planet, replicating, mutating, maybe making vaccinations less effective, right? And so similarly, Israeli citizens aren't safe if their Palestinian neighbors aren't getting vaccinated and they're commuting in another country for work. So kind of a, you know, important detail in in what otherwise would be just like a, a total success story. Yeah, and a great credit to them for what they've done. As usual, like when Israel puts its mind to something, it's extraordinary what they can do. But to your point, it's a, it's a, one of the reasons why they hit such high targets is because it was a relatively small geographic space. So was the West Bank and Gaza, and and for moral reasons and for practical reasons, like you say, they they should be they should not be practicing this type of vaccine nationalism, which again we might see in other places too. Um, so. So you know, my hope is that 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 changes. It's really, you know, given think of how close people live to each other um, across some of the the lines that divide the West Bank and uh, and Israel. Like, you know, they 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 can do this, and they and and if they want to be, you know, they're an occupying power. They should do it. Yeah. Yes, they should. Uh, last thing, just on vaccine supply, just to close out here with some good news. Uh, I saw right before we came into the show that. 
There is preliminary data that shows that Russia's uh, Sputnik V vaccine is over 90% effective and it's 100% effective against serious illness. So again, that is great news. There is no great power yeah. competition when it comes to nope. developing vaccines. Nope. We we need billions of these things. So that's uh, just made me very happy. Again, another theme like public health should be the most apolitical thing. <laughs> you know, you want you, I don't care where the vaccine's from if it works. I want everybody to get the vaccine, even if it's people I don't agree with. Uh, like, like, let's just we can put everything aside <laughs> to get this done. I don't care if, if it's called Moderna or Sputnik or whatever else it's called. Like, let's just get shots into people's arms, guys. Agreed. Uh, OK, so just going to do something unusual here to go into the break, which is uh, play some music for you. This is Anastasia Vasilia, a doctor uh, and close ally of Alexei Navalny in Russia. She was playing the piano as police investigators entered her home to search the place, uh, and they ultimately arrested her because she is in the opposition. And so we'll, we'll leave you with this music, and when we come back, we'll have Ben's interview with Terrell Germain Starr. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm really glad now to be joined by Terrell Germain Starr, who's a senior reporter at The Root and the host of Black Diplomats podcast. Uh, Terrell, thanks so much for, for joining us on the show here. Hey, thank you very much. I've, um, interestingly enough, wanted to be a guest. Oh, good, good. Well, I'm glad we made it happen. Um, yeah. And, and look, I wanted, I wanted to you know, just kick it off uh, by just you know, naming something that we don't talk about enough, which is um, you know, I spent eight years in the White House NSC meetings, principal committee meetings, deputy committee meetings, and you look around the room um, and it's almost always largely white faces. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I'd looked around the room and the only black or brown face in the room was President Obama. Um, and and <laughs> yeah. I want to, yeah, you know, I mean, he was the boss, but still. And so I want to explore kind of the, wh- why that is and what we can do about it, but also importantly, like what what kind of policy outcomes that leads to. Um, so, so just for starters, I mean, as someone who's explored this and everybody should check out your podcast, um, how would you describe this problem? Why is it that foreign policy in particular, more so probably than just about any other policy area in the United States, despite, you know, real gains, Lloyd Austin, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, why is it that uh, this has been, you know, such a difficult endeavor to promote meaningful diversity in the, in the workforce? And then we can get into what that means for, for outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. So when you think about national security, I, you really should be thinking about what makes people feel safe. And so when you think about what makes people feel safe, uh, when you, particularly with people of color, we think about our we don't think about the world per se. We think about what's going on in our communities. We think about what's happening um, with our, you know, with food, being able to put 
uh, food on the table, thinking about our next job. And so when you think, so the first off, first of all, when you think about national security, it's this perceived as this far away thing that we don't have a grasp for. And I'm saying this as a, a black man who grew up in inner city Detroit, whose world I just could not see beyond Detroit until I went to school and started traveling. And you also have to think about where are the gateways into this field. And so normally the gateways are foreign service. It is some form of government work. And you normally have to know someone who helps you to kind of get be in the know. It's normally the think tank communities. And I could speak from my experience in that I found that culturally these places are very difficult to navigate. Uh, you know, particularly um if you're you're they're just in the comfort of having a conversation about security. For example, uh, if you're thinking about Iran, right, you know, think about the fact that my, my number one observation about Iran, for example, is that I don't think that a lot of us legitimately give Tehran the the grace of feeling threatened. Right. You know, like the basic stuff like, you know, they are Persians. They're not Arabs, for example. And I'm bringing all this up to say that. I think that we spend so much time thinking about foreign policy and the concept of military and thinking about it in the terms of neoliberalism that a lot of people of color who would be good candidates to fill these roles may not feel comfortable bringing that perspective. And so I think the Black Lives Matter movement has manifested in this country a new bravery and confidence that we are capable of being in these rooms. And we don't have to be a particular type of person in order to fit in. And so we see these um, improvements taking place right now, but you're going to see more as the Black Lives Matter movement emboldens folks to feel like it's okay to infiltrate uh, these spaces. And I know for me, what helped was I had a number of people who told me that, hey, you're talented, Terrell, and you have the capability and your personal experience is important and it's valuable. And I see the world uh interestingly enough through my uncles who sold drugs you know what i'm saying and, and, you know like it's just yeah. just just an ir irony thing i've re actually written about this and so just feeling safe to say that and being able to flesh that out in an intellectual framework it makes all the difference in the world i, I you know it's really interesting and i want to unpack kind of some of the different angles of this um because i was always struck uh, again i'm i'm just drawing on my experience right which is working for obama that he had this this Which different is a big experience. <laughs> it's a big experience, right? But he had this, you know, he had this double experience that he brought to that office that, that nobody'd had before. One is he lived in Indonesia um, right after a coup that the CIA sponsored that killed hundreds of thousands of people. So he saw as a kid like the other side of American power, the the side that Americans don't like to look at abroad. And then he had an experience as a black man in the United States of recognizing that the authorities, you know, <laughs> sometimes uh, can do things that, right. that make you feel less safe, right? Make you feel less insecure. And I think that, that that led him to kind of think about, you know, some of the negative consequences of things that America might do around the world, you know, militarily and otherwise sanctions in ways that other presidents wouldn't. I, I know I just offered kind of a, a pretty leading question, but the question itself is, if we bring different perspectives, particularly black and brown perspectives into the room, uh, how do you do you think that that might lead to different outcomes in terms of, you know, looking at American power through different eyes, uh, considering restraint before we act? Uh, how would that, you know, how would that interface with the issues that, that American foreign policy deals with? 
Well, for one, I, I think that it's not just about having people of color. It's about having people of color who are interested in challenging the neoliberal construct that is foreign policy. And so, you know, there are plenty of people of color who are fine with things the way that they are, and they're just fine with ascending to the top. Uh, so I think that is about bringing folks in who really have a healthy appreciation of deconstructing this 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 economic construct that feeds into our militarism, for example. And so when you when you think about safety and when I talk about safety on my podcast, Black Diplomats, uh, my whole thing is how do I get you engaged in this conversation? Because, you know, the, the same folks, you know, um, Biden, for example, he won a majority of the black vote this go around. And so he's going to be making a lot of foreign policy decisions. And a lot of us don't feel like we're engaged and we don't feel like we have the language to have those conversations. And so, first of all, you have to get people language and, and to, to work around. And so what I've found to be most productive is saying, hey, what are some things you connect to? And the number one thing that I've heard are veterans. Right. And because too, so often veterans are are connected to, you know, our armed forces and those are the people who are sent off to fight wars. And we often look, unfortunately, at foreign policy through the lens of military, you know, through the through, through, through the barrel of a gun. And so what is it like to divest from the Pentagon? For example, we saw uh, some more progressive uh, members of Congress are pushing for a 10 percent cut you know, in the Pentagon. And so what can that be divest? What, what can that be reinvested into? Should that be, that should be reinvested into the state department. Right. And so yeah. people who are actually skilled at, at, at diplomacy, and I don't think we spend enough time talking about dive, you know, when we talk about divest to invest, divest from the Pentagon, and we know that they have billions of dollars in waste that could be going to state department officials who are very talented, a state department that was decimated, under the Trump administration, let's be you know blunt about that. Um, and, yeah. and so when you start telling people about things that they can tangibly touch, then they'll start to have an understanding of it because they'll be able to talk to people, you know, they'll be able to talk to their cousins, they'll be able to talk to their children, they'll be able to talk to their parents because the military, you know, for a lot of folks is a gateway there. Another thing is, you know, I find that, uh, you know, bringing people of color into these conversations who really have an analysis about these things, um, it, it, it can also mean that we will have different relationships with uh, people who are deemed adversaries. So you take, for example, with Iran, I brought it up earlier, is that, you know, one thing I respect about Obama in the Iran deal and, and the first step he took with that was he didn't care about the, the grievances. Well, he cared about the, grievance, the regional grievances, but this whole thing was. I do not want Tehran to create a nuclear weapon. That was the that was and, and you know this as being a part of you know national security meetings and things like that. That was like the big grasp of it, and it was working until Trump unraveled it. And so I think that there are a lot of ways in which you know you make a decision about who's an ally and who is the person that you can work with. And Iran is one of those places where okay. We're going to determine that they're the axis of evil, but there are so many people. You can make an argument that Saudi Arabia could be on that axis of evil. It's all about how you perceive things, right? And so the, people make these decisions, and you can reimagine these decisions. It's really that simple. And so I think that people of color and the people who have been on my show have begun reimagining what this, you know, what what it means to be an adversary, what it means to be an enemy of the United States. And I think that 
we would be able to help to deconstruct this Cold War mentality towards Russia as an area that I'm very keen on. And, you know, there is a way in which we deal with the Kremlin. And I tend to say the Kremlin because I don't like to stigmatize Russians by saying the Russians. So, you know, you, when you look at the Kremlin, you know, there are we, we need to negotiate them with New Start. We need to negotiate with them in regards to, um, you know, when, when you cause, you know, nuclear de, um, non-proliferation, but there are still ways in which we're going to have to be strong, you know, strong and, you know, uh, from a sanctions perspective over Crimea and a number of other things. And so we have that relationship with Russia, right? So why can't we have it with Iran? Why can't we have it with other places? And so a fresh perspective of people of color perspective will also help America look at its own flaws, right? You know, America forever has been this country that says that we are the model for the world. And yeah. I think that when you see people like myself, people, uh, you know, black men and women, people of color who are locked up literally in cages, you know, they will say, wow, you know, this is how America treats its own people. How can it yeah. just sit on a sit on its pedestal and preach to us? And so you're going to have people from these experiences reimagining what safety means. And that's going to have a very different outcome for the ways in which we engage folks who we deem our adversaries because it, it definitely needs to change. Yeah, no, and you make a powerful argument, uh, you know, that, that getting different people in the rooms allows us to look at things differently, allows us to make different priorities on things like defense spending, challenging certain aspects of the neoliberal consensus. There's also, uh, you know, what do you think the opportunity is abroad? Because, you know, I, I think Americans don't fully sometimes appreciate how much our legacy of white supremacy you know, in fact, impacts how people hear us when we talk to them about things like democracy, you know, which has been a feature of American foreign policy. I, and I also noticed the power of showing up in other countries, um, particularly in, you know, increasingly important countries in the global south right? Uh, and showing up with not just a Barack Obama, but a Susan Rice, you know, when I was uh, working there, that, 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 that uh, frankly, you're, you're puncturing some of the skepticism people have about American democracy, you know, if we have different representation abroad in the foreign service and in the people who are showing up with the president, you know, what is the opportunity there to kind of reshape how the world looks at America's own flaws uh, and, and, and make us a kind of more credible voice on things like human rights where we seem to have lost all of our credibility? Well, you, you, well, that's a, actually a very good question. In order for American uh, diplomats, people of color who are put into these roles to be representatives of America, we have to have good leadership at home, right? So it's it's not just enough to appoint, you know, people of color ambassadors to critical areas of the world if we don't have good leadership at home that are actually creating domestic policies. You know, for example, uh, like, what it, you know, uh, you know what it means to stop sending military aid and selling military arms to local police departments. You know, Biden is already taking steps, you know, begun to take steps in that regard. So that's laudable. Um, but this this when you un, it took it has taken hundreds of years to create this white supremacist construct. And it's going to take many more to unravel people's minds around the, around the reality that we don't have to live this way. So, so, so it's, so the representation part is important, but there are some structural things at home, you know, for one, one example is that we saw it in Georgia, just some, you know, people panned, um, 
Zelensky, the, the Ukrainian president, you know, where I'm at right now in Ukraine, like the Ukrainian president Zelensky on his Axios interview for saying that, you know, I, you know, I look at America differently. Now, on one point, I do respect the fact that because Ukraine is constitutionally limited in regards to its authority and as much and, and much of its power is linked to defense and national security. So maybe it may not have been the most diplomatic thing to say, but on his face, he was not wrong. Right. And so there are plenty of people who are a lot more independent, who have the capacity to point the finger and they have power and they independent power from us where they don't have to, you know, beg us for support. So I, I think we, you know, just think about the fact that we had J January 6th, a literal attempted coup, right? Yeah. The ways that we talk about other countries at uh, Karen Atia at the Washington Post has an incredible series of stories where she says, well, if this were happening in another country, this is how Western media would cover it. And so America still is kind of high on its own, you know, pseudo democracy supply, if you will. And, you know, I think that there needs to be a reality check with ourselves to say that for in many respects, we are our democracies are just as fragile in many respects as a lot of the countries that we like to criticize. And so keep in mind also that you have a Democratic, you have a Republican Party that essentially is functioning as a, a de facto terrorist, a terror cell or at, or at minimum a propaganda tool for, you know, larger domestic terror cells in, in the United States. Now, it sounds like hyperbole to people, but it's a real thing. We have a functioning, powerful party that has the capacity to elect presidents that is actively and openly undermining democracy. Think about that. So it's it's one thing to send in diplomats, but the work that activists did in Georgia, you know, it, it's it's just um, it, it's remarkable. And so as much so, so the work that you know Latasha Brown is doing, Stacey Abrams, there are so many other activists around the country who are trying to save, quite frankly, white America from itself. And, and so the uh, diplomats who are deployed across the world are benefiting from that. So the more that we showcase that activism is improving our country and the more that people like President Joe Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris and Democrats, because Republicans just don't care, but Democrats embracing the movement that is going to create a stronger foreign policy and a stronger diplomatic core because we're strengthening democracy at home and we're giving diplomats that we're deploying, you know, the proper support and showing them that, yes, we're, we're, we're calling for democracy in your lands. But look at what we're doing at home. And this is the example that we want you to follow. Yeah. Yeah. And. I, you know, I, some of this is a, the the story that's told too, right? I mean, the, the media uh, is even less diverse <laughs> than, the, than the workforce. Uh, and you know, yeah. you're, you're in the media. You got a podcast. You write. You mentioned Karen Atia. She's great at the Post and bringing new voices in. How important is it to change who's telling the story about these issues? I'll tell you the reason why I started Black Diplomats was because I felt like for a long time I was shut out of national policy conversations, and I didn't feel safe in these spaces because quite frankly my perspective is different and I've always been willing to talk to people about how I view things but I've you know there was a point where I almost quit the Russia area studies field roughly about six seven years ago and the reason why I almost quit was because it's already tough 
in the U.S. press corps. We've had a Black Lives Matter movement. I think what really uh, buoyed uh, black journalists in particular was the 2000, well, not only black journalists, but people of color journalists were the um, uprisings and, and um, you know, in, in Ferguson, right? Yeah. In 2014, the, the untimely, you know, killing of Michael Brown. And so when you saw... Not only you know working journalists, but you saw activists taking over social media platforms and retelling the story. Then that gave black journalists, people of color journalists, in newsrooms more power. So the movement empowered us. Yeah, and I don't know how. And, and we really need to start really giving activists their props, right? I mean, because I know that there's a separation between activists and journalists and everything. But if it wasn't for those activists, newsrooms would be weaker black people would would be weaker in our newsrooms if it wasn't for the black lives matter movement and so that in itself gave me courage to try right because if it wasn't for my, my social media platform people reached out to me based on how i was tweeting about ukraine because i didn't need anyone's permission to tweet yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, okay and so slowly but surely people started asking me to write and then i started getting opportunities to speak and so I started developing the confidence that I can do these things. And, and and I found black people who said, hey, I studied Russian at Georgetown or I studied Russian, you know, at Ohio State. And so we developed this small group, a camaraderie of black people who are interested in Russia and Central Asia and Eurasia. And so we had similar stories about being shut out, being shut down and being ignored and being insulted by white people and, you know, media in, in, in Eastern Europe and think tanks, et cetera. And so we developed a union. And so it, it was them who actually encouraged me over the years to get to create a podcast. And I also saw the fact that there are a lot of people of color who left the Obama administration and they had a hard time getting hits on television. And so I said, you know what, let me give you uh, a space and so i started a, a kick a, a kickstarter and raised money to get you know this equipment that i'm using to talk with you yeah. right now with because it's expensive you know and so i but but also it i also the the thing about a podcast is that it's very different from appearing on cnn for a, a three minute segment or a five minute segment where you know you're just hitting your talking points yeah, i mean yeah. you know you being able to do this work getting getting on this microphone and you do it and in, in talking to somebody for, hey, the time that we're speaking to, you get to really understand who a person is. You get to flesh out their views and their ideas and their perspectives in a way that you can't do in a succinct soundbite. And so I gave a platform to mostly people of color. But I, and I haven't had one white man on my show yet. And it's not because I don't like white men. I mean, <laughs> you're cool, Ben. You know, uh, but it's like I, I just feel like um, we've heard yeah. those perspectives and you can go anywhere for them. And so. I'm really proud to say that I'm approaching my 30th episode and everybody that's been on my show has been a person of color and a person of color who has a, a mentality about challenging neoliberalism. And so a number of people who are on my show were on my show in the past are now in the Biden Harris administration. That's something yeah. I'm very proud of. And it's something I'm working to build on. And, and I think, and people have told me Terrell you know, I can't really say this publicly, but I listen to your podcast every week because you say a whole lot of things that I want to say in meetings, but I can't do it. So there are a lot of people in the State Department that listen to me. There are people that work across the, the United States federal government, but also folks who felt like they didn't have access to it because 
they see someone like me, they see somebody with my politic and say, dang, man, you make me feel safe. I can ask questions. I don't want to sound dumb. And so it's nothing like seeing someone like yourself that makes you feel secure and being able to ask the next question. And so Black Diplomats is really about talking about safety and security in a way that we all can understand because safety and security for black folk is an entirely different thing for white folks. And it has nothing to do explicitly with our skin color. It has everything to do with how we walk this earth. And so once I bring in policing, I bring in the military, I bring in all these sensory points that people can touch onto, then I give them, I give people a variety of entry points that they could that they can engage the conversation that they otherwise wouldn't have in a more kind of route or a uh, a very kind of um, the word I'm looking for is um, um, I guess that for lack of a better word because I can't find it is you know like a straight shot type of uh, uh, approach that says hey this is what Russia is doing this is what China is doing and quite frankly it's like it, it, people can't grasp it because they don't know where to hit at and so with me i talk one of the things i talk about safety and security is I, I spoke with latasha brown and she was talking about um i talked to her about her activism but a lot of people don't know she said i wanted to be a diplomat i wanted to be a un uh diplomat and so we spoke about that and so there are a lot of activists out there who have studied abroad or they speak another language or they may have an immigrant experience and so they could talk about the perspective of i've come here as an undocumented immigrant and I've gotten, you know, legal status, I've, I've gotten, um, I've become documented um, now, but they could talk about safety and security from that perspective. And so those are the voices that I have intentionally sought in is gaining traction. Well, look, uh, you know, we wanted to have you on to kind of, you know, get that sense of, of your mission and, and hopefully uh, encourage some of our listeners to to check out uh, Black Diplomats. I'd love to have you back on at some point to just talk Russia and Ukraine. Please. Uh, you know. Yeah, of course. I, I'm I'm, re- I'm ready for it. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a um, non-resident fellow at the Atlantic yeah. Council. Uh, one thing uh, I want to shout out and I spend a lot of time on these things. And so I'm more than willing to provide that perspective. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So please, I'm, I'm waiting. Yeah, let's do it. Because, um, uh, un, you know, unfortunately, we know that there'll be a lot of twists and turns in those stories in the coming weeks and months in Russia and Ukraine. But look, we we, we, we loved having you. And uh, uh, again, everybody should check out Black Diplomats, uh, check, follow you on social media and and hope you, uh, I'm sure it's a little colder in Ukraine than it is uh, where I am in, in L.A., but uh I hope you you uh, have some, some yeah. time down there too. <laughs> All right, thanks a lot for joining us. Uh, yeah, absolutely, man. Thank you so much. That's all we got for today. Thank you to uh, Terrell Jermaine Star for doing the show. Uh, ben, I'm very excited to buy your book. Thanks, man. Remind me again where I can find that link. Well, you know, uh, you, you can go to Amazon or you can go to your independent bookstore and support your independent bookstore. Or uh, if you go to my uh, Twitter feed, uh, there's also the the uh, Random House, my publisher's link. So there's lots of ways to get it. Um, but I really hope people check it out. Fantastic. I cannot wait. Talk to you guys next week. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our associate producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Yale Freed, Narmal Konian, and Milo Kim, who film and share our episodes as videos each week. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.